Well, as I just said, my name is Mason. Uh, I'm really glad that you're here. This is obviously our very first service, and I want to share a few words about that, about this space generally, about this morning, and, and sort of about our mindset as we approach this space and as we uh, move forward together. First, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you. Um, so many people have put in so many hours and sacrificed so much to uh, get this place ready for a worship service. And the kids' rooms were a complete overhaul. Um, you know, all the new sound equipment that had to be figured out and put together. And uh, a lot of people gave up a whole lot of time to make this happen. I think two things are true simultaneously. One, your, you know, church building and your space, it matters. I'm thankful that we have this building and this space right in the heart of our city because it gives us some permanence, at least the, the thought of permanence. It gives us some roots. It gives us something that is ours from which we can uh, continue to grow uh, across our city and across our state. It gives us ministry opportunities, allowing people to use this space for uh, their events and to serve them well and as a picture of the gospel and then to share the gospel with them. So I think this building, it matters. The fact that we're here this morning, it matters. It matters to me that it was built in 1912 as a house for entertainment. It matters to me that so many of you saw your first movies here. Uh, if you're, I didn't. I wasn't even showing movies when I saw my first movie. So many of you, you know, saw your movies here, you went on dates here, you, you grew up coming here. It, it's cool that this building is a part of our city's story, and I think it's just in God's providence and grace that, that it's passed down to his people. But just because space and buildings matter don't mean they are the mission. This building isn't the goal. The goal isn't just to fill this room so that we can have a big church. The goal isn't to have a much better space so we can have a better production, so we can have better stuff, so we can have nicer things, so people can think that we're doing well. People are still the mission. The people hearing the gospel is what we're still all about. And the goal of this building is to be a place where we come and gather week in and week out to be built up and sent out to live on mission in the everyday stuff of life. Space buildings, they matter, but space and buildings are not our mission. Speaking of the space and buildings itself, uh, as soon as the service is over, uh, if you would like to take a little tour of the building, you can do so. I encourage you to go to the balcony, uh, see the old, old seats. Uh, if you, we'll have someone go up there with you, and there's the old projectors they used to shoot the films onto this screen with, um, and it's just a really neat piece of history. Uh, go see the, the kids' classrooms, the preschool and nursery, or if you look back through the mezzanine, they're on that sort of second floor, first floor, whatever you want to call it, and then the third floor uh, is K through Five. So I hope after the service you'll uh, take an opportunity to, to wander around the building, to take a gander at the things we have. Uh, if you are a film collector and like those uh, projectors, they are for sale. And the sale will go towards buying a new HVAC that can cool this room well. So um, if you're a little warm like me, uh, we only have a few more weeks uh, of mid-70, upper 70s in here, and then it'll cool off. But if we can sell that, we'll put it in tomorrow. Honestly, it's sort of a, a way for us to get you to volunteer because the kids' rooms feel fantastic. <laughs> if you've been around much, I've just finished a four-part series providing theological, ecclesiological, and missiological foundations for our church. I enjoyed it immensely. I even put the sermons together in one PDF and made it a booklet. But this morning, I'm not going to preach about those things. I'm not going to preach about apostolic church planting. 
I'm not going to speak about incarnational ministry. I'm not going to preach about creational multiplication. That was probably my favorite. And I'm not going to preach about the interdependence of the church. This morning, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about who resurrection is. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about what resurrection wants to do. I'm just going to tell you who resurrection is all about. I'm just going to preach the gospel. If you want to know more about our church, you know where to look. You know who to ask. This morning, though, I want us to focus our attention on the risen Lord. I want us to focus our attention on Jesus. And I just want to set before you, non-believer, believer, guest member alike, the good news of Jesus. I have two questions I want you to consider. If you're taking notes, maybe jot them down, um, put them in your phone. And I want you to kind of have these questions mulling in your head. And then at the end, especially, kind of come back to them and think about them. And if I forget to mention them, you've got them. The first question is, what do I orient my life around? What do I orient my life around? You know, what's that thing that's at the center of my life around which everything else revolves? And the second question is related to that question, and the question is just, what can it do? Can that thing save me? Can that thing satisfy me? Can that thing be for me what I need that thing to be for me? Can that thing do for me the things that I need done for me? Let's jump into the book of Galatians together. Galatians chapter 1. By way of introduction, a few entry sort of points. The book of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to churches he helped plant in South Galatia throughout his first missionary journey. He probably passed through these churches in these towns in around 47 or 48, and it's likely that this letter was written somewhat later in 48. So, you know, you're looking at possibly a year time, sort of a lasting between when Paul and his team helped plant these churches and between when this letter is being written back to these churches. And in just this short amount of time, trouble has come to this young church. As church planters, we know that trouble can come to young churches. Trouble in this instance that the Apostle Paul believes threatens their very understanding of the gospel. Paul's tone when you read his letters is often loving, it's often warm. We've read Philippians and we've noticed Uh, We've read Thessalonians, or or referenced that church a lot in the last sermon series, and we've noticed how Paul talks about, I was like a a mother to you, I was like a father to you, you know, I I was patient with you, I loved you, I was long-suffering. But Paul's tone in Galatians is still loving, but it's somewhat curt. It's still tender, but it's very direct and very to the point. Because that which is of most importance... The good news of Jesus, the facts about who he is and the meaning of what he's done. This good news, Paul believes, is being clouded. More than just being clouded, it's being replaced by something else. Some false teachers have worked their way into the congregation. Some false teachers have claimed that they come with much authority. And they have the keys to the kingdom of God, if you will. They've claimed that rightly following God means being circumcised. It means observing Jewish dietary laws. It means celebrating Jewish holidays. That if you want to follow God with your life, if you want to please God with your life, these are the things you must, must do. Through faith and observance of the law would come salvation, preach these false teachers. Paul knows this is no gospel at all. Because our problem Your problem, my problem, the Galatians' problem, the Philippians' problem, the church across town's problem, we can talk about their problems, right? You know, the church, all of our problems are the same. 
We cannot comprehensively obey the law. We can't do everything we should do. We always do things we shouldn't do, and we always don't do things that we should do. So how is it good news that we can be saved by doing something that we can't do? Bad news, right? Your sin keeps you from obeying the law. Bad news, the reason you can't obey the law is because you have a heart problem. Bad news, the reason you have a heart problem is because sin comes in and it takes good desires and then twists them. Acceptance is a good desire, but we can look for it in the wrong places. Peace is a good desire, sort of wholeness is a good desire, but we can start looking for wholeness and peace in the wrong places. Those desires that God given us, that are, has given us that are good have been corrupted by sin. And because we have a corrupted heart, every single one of us, we can't obey the law. We can't obey it perfectly. So bad news, your sin keeps you from obeying the law. Good news, you can be saved by keeping the law. That's no good news. You know what would be good news? If someone obeyed the law perfectly for me. (laughs) If someone did what I couldn't do and then say, here, I earned this for you, it's yours now. That would be good news. And that, Paul teaches us, is exactly what Jesus did. Look with me in Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This sermon won't be super long. It divides into two parts, verses 1 through 5, and then verses uh, 6 through 9. Verses 1 through 5 we'll call uh, a gospel greeting. A gospel greeting. The first word of the letter is Paul, claiming authorship of the letter. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right here, off In the very beginning, Paul is sort of grounding his authority, not in himself, but in God. And there's going to be a lot of this letter, especially in the first half, where Paul really grounds his authority in the calling God's given him, more so in the message that God has given him. No doubt Paul's authority has come under fire by the false teachers in Galatia. So picture with me, you know, Paul going and planting the gospel among these people, the church being born, the church being harvested among these people. Paul leaves, and then after Paul leaves, other leaders start coming in, people who are hungry for a platform. We see these sorts of people in the church today. Someone comes in as this itinerant evangelist. Someone comes in as this teacher who has a superior word from God. And they come in, they're going to teach God's people what it really means to be a Christian. But here's the problem. What it really means to be a Christian to them is crowded by their sociological and cultural preferences. So they're less concerned about these people accurately following the way of Christ, and they're more concerned about teaching people how to look like them, act like them, think like them, and talk like them. Do we know any teachers like that today. Who is Paul to tell you guys how to live, right? Paul, I mean, you can't trust him. I mean, look who he was just a couple of years ago. No doubt they're claiming that we are from Jerusalem. Our authority is greater than Paul's. We're from the mega church, man. We're from, we're from down in Jerusalem where everything happens, where the hub of religion is. You can trust us. 
We can show you the true meaning of what it means to be a Christian. They're going to argue that Paul is teaching this gospel that's truncated, it's short, it's not enough. Faith alone? Just faith? That's not what it means. You can't, surely you can't live a life, a good life, by faith alone. Surely the gospel is more than just believing something and responding and surrendering your life to Christ. Surely you got to eat the right things, right? Surely you got to wear the right things. Surely you got to celebrate the right feasts. Who's this Paul guy? Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. But Paul says, I'm an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If you know the story of Paul, he encountered Jesus on a road to Damascus and received a commission from this risen Lord. Paul's message isn't his. He didn't write it. It wasn't his idea. His authority isn't derived because he's a charismatic leader. His authority doesn't come from his social status. His authority doesn't come from his money. His authority doesn't come from his ability to articulate a particular teaching. His authority comes from the reality that the risen Lord showed up to him and gave him a message to give to the Gentiles. His authority is from God because the message he carries is from God. So Paul, an apostle, one sent by God, one encountered by the risen Lord himself, one whose message is not his, it's not his preference, it wouldn't be the life he chose for himself, but it's the life he's had because Christ has gotten to him. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Really quickly, every service, at the end of the service, what's going to happen? I'm going to finish preaching, and the band's going to come up, we're going to sing another song, I'm going to come back up, I'm going to thank you for being here, and then we're going to sing the doxology, and then as soon as we sing the doxology, I'm going to say what? Grace and peace be with you. You're dismissed. And when you read the New Testament, you hear at the beginning of letters, grace and peace. You see at the end of letters, grace and peace. If you email with someone who's just Christian enough, maybe their you know, tagline will be grace and peace. We hear these words, grace and peace be with you. And I think sometimes they can just become empty ritual. They can just become things we say. They can just become hollow words. Grace and peace. Okay, grace and peace, mercy, justice, love for the world. Amen. World peace. But what do these words mean? Grace is unmerited favor, Right? Grace means that God doesn't deal with us how we deserve. He deals with us in his infinite mercy. Grace is favor I've received that I've done nothing to earn. What is peace? Well, the Greek meaning of the word in the New Testament is built on the Hebrew foundations of the word in the Old Testament, and the word being shalom, this, this state of wholeness, this peace that's pervasive. It's where things are as they ought to be. The Christian has peace with God, and from that foundation, he can have peace with himself or herself and with one another. Grace is unmerited favor, and peace is a state of wholeness. So today, when I say grace and peace be with you, perhaps you could listen and hear this. May God's unmerited favor rest on you and make you whole. What a way to leave church. May God's unmerited favor rest on you. When you leave today, may God's unmerited favor rest on you. Not because you earned it. Not because you're good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, cool enough, popular enough. But because he's good enough. May God's unmerited favor rest on you. 
and make you whole. May your longings find fulfillment in Christ. May you feel loved in Christ. May you feel accepted in Christ. May you leave here not living for some acceptance out there, but leaving from acceptance you've received from God. May God's unmerited favor rest on you and make you whole. We continue, so from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the rest of your verse, for there who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In one little verse, I think that the apostle is reminding the Christians in Galatia of his divine message. I think we can see a few things, three things right here just in this little verse. One, we can see a bit about who we are. Two, we can see a bit about what Jesus has done. And three, to an extent, we can see why he has done it. How can we see who we are? Well, look with me in verse four. Who gave himself for our sins to what? Did it say who gave himself for our sins to teach us how to be delivered? Doesn't say that. The text says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. So who are we? How does that phrase inform how I ought to think of myself? Well, Jesus, the text says, came to deliver us. He didn't come simply to instruct us, to encourage us, to prod us along in the way that we should go. He came to save us. We ultimately don't need simply instructed Our sin problem is too deep to learn ourselves out of. Our sin problem is too deep to fake ourselves out of. Our sin problem is too deep to just fake it until we make it. Imagine seeing a woman drowning and tossing her a manual on how to swim. Oh, my God, she's drowning, she's drowning. Oh, did you get that manual, how to swim? Oh, thank the Lord, here it is. Hey, ma'am, here you go, here's a manual on how to swim. (laughs) You wouldn't do that. You would jump in the water, unless you can't swim, then, you know, hey, come here, right? You would jump in the water and, and save her and pull her up and, and, and deliver her from that situation that she could do nothing about. We are helpless, and Jesus came to deliver us. One of the reasons our name is Resurrection Church is because resurrection is sort of this theme that goes through the whole Bible of God bringing death from life, that when I'm not a Christian, I'm not, like, worse than everyone else. Sometimes you're morally superior to other people and not a Christian, right? The problem when you're not in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you and you're spiritually, you're just dead. And what the gospel is, is the good news of Jesus coming to earth and sending his spirit to dwell in people. The gospel is a message of resurrection, not simply a message of fixing and teaching. We are helpless without Christ. What has Jesus done? The text says he gave himself. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He gave himself. This is that language of substitution that Jesus died in my place. We're going to elaborate on that at the end of the message. When I think about this theme of substitution, right, that Jesus being in my place, I think about a hymn written in the late 1800s, In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, 
What a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew His song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. If Jesus really died in your place, if He really took your sins on Himself, who are you to think you could add anything to that payment? And why did He do it? Why did He do it? Verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It was the will of God our Father that the Son would give himself for us. It was the will of God the Father that rebellious sinners like me and like you could have a way of salvation in Christ Jesus. And it was his will that he would get the glory for it. He would be glorified by saving sinners. In the gospel greeting here Paul is weaving the good news through every word he writes as he builds his authority for the letter that will follow. Second part, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished. It's not going to mince words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is shocked. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel of Christ. You're deserting the gospel of grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Let's note a few things, right? Paul says there is no other gospel. There is no other good news. The people who are coming, these false teachers who are coming to you, they're not presenting a viable alternative. They're not presenting a, 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 a different version of the same thing. By adding their own requirements, by adding things that they think should be in there, if you will, they've effectively stripped the work of Christ of its power and then done what they think it should be to make it more powerful. This is crucial to see. They've taken news about what God has done for man, and they make it about what man must do for God. They've taken this gospel pronouncement about what God has done for us, and they've twisted it, and they've turned it into a teaching on what man must do for God. But Paul is saying, that's not okay. That's not just like, oh, you believe that, I believe this, we're all happy, things are great. If you revise the gospel, you reverse the gospel. If you accept the parts of the gospel you like and not those you don't like, then you're placing yourself in authority over the gospel. You are becoming the arbiter of what's true and what's not true. And I believe that's exactly the same thing Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. You might be comfortable doing that. You might be comfortable claiming authority over the God of the cosmos. You might be comfortable claiming authority of the God who thought up every intricacy of the human body. You might be comfortable claiming the authority over the God who rules depths of the oceans that we've never even seen. You might be comfortable usurping the authority of a God who's created stars that we've never seen, been to, even know exist. But I'm not comfortable placing myself in authority over that God. Paul shows us that if we do that, if we edit this gospel message to remove what we don't like and keep what we do like, we're in serious, serious trouble. In verses 8 and 9, he goes on, but even if we or an angel from heaven 
would preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. This is important to understand how, just how much weight Paul's putting on the gospel. He's saying, listen, man, if I show up at your church next week and say, hey, I changed my mind about that whole thing, right? I changed my mind. I was kidding. It was a joke, and y'all took it way too seriously. Or y'all didn't actually believe that, right? You know? He said, if I show up again and I say something that's not true, like lump me in with the false teachers, man. Let me be accursed because this message isn't mine. If someone comes, I don't care who it is, if it's an angel from heaven, if it's another person, if it's me, and if they preach to you the good news contrary to the good news that has been delivered to you already, let them be accursed. Let them be cut off. Let them be eternally damned. Let them be away. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is a big deal. Eternity hinges on understanding this news. Here's the point I think Paul is driving home if you're taking notes. Orienting our lives around a distortion of the gospel is disastrous. Orienting our lives around a distortion of the gospel is disastrous. And here's the problem. I believe many of us are doing just that. What are some distortions of the gospel that we're tempted to believe? Uh, I have a few that came to mind in preparation. You may have more that come to your mind I think the distortions of the gospel that we're tempted to believe this morning come at us from all parts of the ideological spectrum. From the theological left, from the political left, from the political right, from different ideologies, there are distortions of the gospel that we could be tempted to believe. Ideas that threaten to impose their own rule over the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. One distortion of the gospel is what I am calling the get saved and be good enough distortion. (laughs) The get saved and be good enough distortion. And I think this is perhaps the most dangerous for many of you. If you're from here, if you grew up around here, if you went to church camp and raised your hand and prayed a prayer and did all the wonderful things and uh, got your Bible and came home and you knew you were saved by grace, but here's what you thought happened next, right? Be good enough. Be good enough. Hey, you were saved by grace, but now you got to earn it, right? It'd be like me, you know, saying, hey, man, I bought you a, um, I don't know, what's a cool car? Maybe like a tan Toyota Tacoma. (laughs) Hey, I bought you a car that's awesome. Um, I don't drive that, if that's what you're wondering. I bought you a tan Toyota Tacoma, and it's in the the parking lot, man. It's yours. Oh, great, dude. Oh, but one thing, I only put like 500 bucks down on it. So you're going to have a monthly payment. Yeah, you know, four or 500 bucks a month. You got that, right? That's, That's no gift. That's a burden, right? It's no gift that I received by grace, but I have to keep by works. And I don't think that you would have said that, but I think many of us sort of are living with this belief that I'm saved by grace, you know, Christian by grace, Republican by choice. (laughs) We'll get to that distortion, don't worry. I'm saved by grace, but now i got to keep it. I think that's a distortion that many of us have heard. And I want to make the case to you that that's no gospel at all. If Christ loved you while you were not yet his, how much more does he love you now that you are his? 
If Christ died for you at your lowest moment, why does he not love you now? If his grace was sufficient for your salvation, why is his grace not sufficient to keep you saved? The grace that saves you is able to sustain you and it's able to see you through and it will one day glorify you with Christ. His grace is enough. And for many of you, if you've been working and working and working and trying to be good enough, trying to earn God's love, trying to earn God's favor, I want to say stop because it's disastrous because what you're doing is you're trusting yourself and not God and you will be devastated at that consequence. I have good news from you, from Jesus the risen Lord. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Stop trying to be good enough. There's a second distortion this distortion, so that distortion was for those of you who grew up in church, I think. For me, for you, whatever. I think for many of you who didn't grow up in church or who really didn't like what you heard in church, so you got out as soon as you could. There's a second distortion that's equally dangerous. And it's like the, I call it the just love distortion. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think about the gospel. Uh, just love other people, right? Just love your neighbor, just, 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 just love all of these people in your life and everything's going to be okay. Be nice to others and everything will take care of itself. It sounds good and to some degree, I, I understand the sentiment, and to some degree we are supposed to do good. We are supposed to love people. But is that enough to save us? I think it would be if we didn't have a sin problem. <laughs> what does this gospel do about sin? What does this gospel do about other people's sin, about my own sin? How does this gospel take care of sin? The just love Jesus has no power. He didn't eliminate sin. He didn't eliminate brokenness. He just taught us how to love other people and just love other people and just deal with it, and, and it's going to be okay. This distortion of the gospel strips Jesus of the exclusivity which he claims throughout the New Testament. It sounds good, but it doesn't work eternally. It, it hardly acknowledges our sin problem, and it certainly doesn't heal us of this problem. The third distortion, I think, shows up on the political right, so don't throw too much at me. I call it the American Jesus distortion. It shows up on the left, too, but yours is next, so hang in there. We've produced a Jesus that we think should look like us, we genuinely think that the best Bible is in English, and it wasn't even written in English. <laughs> we genuinely can think that the way that other people become Christians is by looking like us and talking like us and thinking like us. We create a Jesus that looks like us, that looks like the way we think he should look. He looks out for me. He looks out for my comfort. He looks out for my safety. He wants me happy. He wants me healthy. He wants me wealthy. He wants me to be successful. He wants me to be patriotic. He wants me to be a great family man. He wants me to be all of these things. In this religion, the 4th of July is just as important as Easter. In this religion, success is just as important as obedience. In this important outcomes are way more important than processes. In this religion, we look a lot less than God, like the God of the Bible, and we look a lot like a wealthy businessman. Be a good American. Stand for the anthem. Be successful. Get people to be like you. By virtue of being born in the promised land, you're a Christian. You're good to go. This is a distortion of the gospel. But I think sometimes the political left can have their own distortions of the gospel. The earthly conqueror distortion. 
that Jesus came to just topple earthly rule. He's a simple liberator, a simple model for how benevolent government should act and function and treat other people. He came simply to overthrow corrupt leaders and simply to deliver the poor and oppressed. He has nothing to say about sin and righteousness. He has only things to say about, about justice and peace and sort of these positive things. So here's the question. How do I know if I'm believing a distortion of the gospel? How do I know if I'm believing in this get saved and work hard distortion? How do I know if I'm just a part of this cultural mass of people who thinks by being a decent human being, I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm not just someone who thinks that the sort of justice ideas of Jesus are good, but has no real desire to follow him? How do I know if one, I'm one of these people? Here's what I would say. Paul is confident. Paul is supremely confident in the gospel that the Galatians have received. So here's the question. What is the gospel at its purest form? What is the gospel that's not too individualistic, that's not too corporate, that's not distorted by one of these things of which there are countless possibilities. I just named a few. How can I know I'm not believing in gospel distortion? I'll ask another question and answer it. What is the gospel? If you're taking notes, I would write this. The objective facts of the Christ event and the divinely stated meaning of those facts. When I think about what is the gospel in, in this context? In this context, Paul is talking about the, the, the facts of the Christ event. What happened? What happened? What happened in the first century? What happened in that town? What happened on that cross? What happened with those people? What actually happened? And then the New Testament meaning of those facts. So my question then is, what are the facts of the Christ event? If you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you stick around here long, I go to this passage all the time. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is teaching on the resurrection. And there's a group of people who are arguing that, oh, the resurrection, it's not one of those central doctrines. You don't have to believe it. It's supernatural. It's hogwash. It's silly. Only uneducated uh, idiots believe that. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That resurrection is central to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, Paul sets forth in almost like a hymnotic fashion, like almost a hymn. It, it, a lot of scholars think this is like a, uh, an oral tradition that's circulating that Paul is, is writing down. Paul says this to the church at Corinth about the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Check it out. Paul is saying, I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I have received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Those are the baseline facts of the Christ event. Paul said, here are the things, this isn't everything you need to know, but these are the most important things you need to know. These are the things of first importance, Paul says. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter in the twelve. That's the good news. That is objectively true. 
And the beauty of Christianity, if you're in the room this morning and you're a skeptic, if you're in the room this morning and you are tired of hearing guys tell you what you should think, you're tired of having people stand over you and tell you how to live your life, here's the glory of the gospel. It's not grounded in an ideology. It's grounded in a person and an event. Our faith is grounded in history that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. He died in the place of sinners. He rose again. He's ascended to heaven, and he will come again. These are the central facts of the Christian life. Confucius came to teach. Buddha came to teach. We don't simply need taught. We need delivered. God came down is the message of Christianity. Now, if those were the objective facts of the Christ event, as they would have received, as they would have heard while Paul was planting these churches, what do they mean? What do they mean? Worship team, if you guys would come on up while we think about what they mean. Well, the whole New Testament is is full of explaining what the gospel means. It's full of exploring the implications of this good news. And I believe that the implications of the gospel are simultaneously personal, societal, and cosmic and global. I believe the gospel teaches, I believe the Bible teaches that in the gospel, God has purchased us. He has redeemed us. The text is clear over and over. He delivered us. He gave himself up for us. That Jesus died in our place. He paid a sin debt that we owed and could not pay. It's clear that he purchased us back from darkness. It's clear that he's redeemed us. And my favorite metaphor of all is that he's adopted us. That God has adopted us into his family. So what God has done in the gospel is taken me, who was dead in my sin, who was a slave to the sins and cravings of my flesh, who wanted power and comfort and success more than anything, and he took me in, and he loved me, and he changed my heart, and he made me merciful, he made me gracious, and he gave me a hope for eternity. This gospel has individual implications, and you won't experience those until you put your guard down, man. You won't experience those until you quit trying to be God and let God be God, and you surrender and say, maybe you know more about me than I know about me. But I don't think we can stop there, because I think that what Jesus did is more than just teach me how to live and teach you how to live and teach our little clusters of people all over the world how to live. I think Jesus came to deal decisively with the deepest problem of the whole world, and that's sin. I think Jesus came as a better Adam. I think Jesus came to inaugurate a new age that will come. Paul said, Christ came to deliver us from this present age. Where is he delivering us to? To another epoch in history. To the age of God's kingdom, where justice flows like living waters. Where the oppressed step on the chains of their oppressor. Where the last are first. Where the hungry are fed where the poor have much. I believe that Jesus has come to make all things right in the world. I believe that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection has inaugurated his kingdom. And I believe one day he will return And injustice will be no more.
pain and suffering will be no more. We look around at brokenness in our relationships and in the life, and we say, how long, Lord? How long? And the scoffer and the skeptic asks, where is your God? And you see that on the news, man? There's people being trafficked. There's human beings being sold. Cancer is killing off people every day. Bad stuff's happening. Like, where is your God? And here's our answer. He is storing up holy wrath that he will pour out on all injustice. And in his time and in his way, he will rule forever. This is the gospel. It changes me. It changes us. It changes the world. And I just have to ask you this. Is this at the center of your life? Or is it some distortion of the gospel? Is success, is your image at the center of your life? Is your family at the center of your life? Is your job at the center of your life? Is there anything wrong with your family? No. Good things are good things, but when good things are God things, good things aren't good things. What is that thing in your life that you orient everything around? Is it money? Is there another gospel? Not that there is another gospel, as Paul says, at the center of your life. For some of you, there is. All of us are vulnerable. And if that's you, let me point you this morning to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me point you this morning to God himself. Hear the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Eugene Peterson, I say this all the time. He calls the ch- one, one thing he calls the church is we are a, a, a colony of heaven in a country of death. We're a colony of heaven in a country of death. And we're called to live our lives in such a way that we reflect the lordship and kingship of King Jesus so that the world may see what it looks like when God has his way. And when we gather as the church, we're subversive. We're kind of countercultural. The world doesn't quite get us. They, some think we're all on the right. Some think we're on the left. Some think we should think this. Some think we should think that. Everyone's got opinions about us. But really, we're God's people. We're people of another age. And we're gathered together in this age as a testament of things to come. And I got a question, how we doing there? How we doing there? What distortions have worked their way in? to our way of life? What distortions, what idols are we bowing to? This morning, do you believe the objective facts of the Christ event? And do you believe they mean what God says they mean? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus in, in the heart of our city. Thank you for um, all of our friends and, and, and family who are, are dedicated to, to living life on mission. Thank you for your word that shows us our blind spots, that convicts us where we need convicted. Lord, if we, like the Galatians, have bought into distortions of the gospel, Lord, may we repent this morning. 
May we focus on these things which are of first importance. And may you move in power and grace among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.